First off, it's so good to be here with you, a real privilege, and my how you've grown. <laughs> Isn't this great? Um, a little foretaste of heaven as the band are playing, people are jostling for seats. Um, I don't quite know what heaven's going to be like, I know a lot of people have lots of theories about it, I'm not quite sure I can fully know, but the, the location of where you are, the windows, the sun shining down on us, the people just gathered for one thing, to see God's face together. It really is a foretaste of heaven, and so it's a huge privilege to be here uh, with you all today. Um, as they said, I'm, I'm Pete, I'm from the UK originally, I've been in Cape Town, uh, yeah, since uh, 2009, so I feel like my, like my proper like adulting has happened in Cape Town, if I like, tried to do like bonds or car registrations in the UK, I wouldn't know how to do it, because I kind of moved here uh, just after uh, graduating from university, I was working at the BBC, um, out of university, um, or kids BBC actually, so we were kind of assembling giant pogo sticks and working out how to most effectively gunge parents for live TV shows. Um, but I had come to South Africa a couple of years before, uh, and God had really impressed on me his heart for Cape Town, this city that we know and love. And I want to go into so much more detail about that, but it's all in the book, and we've got something else to talk about. That's actually the reason the book was written, because it was just how did you end up there, what's the story, etc. Um, but today I want us to look at something that's really close to my heart, and I believe is what God might just be saying to you guys, to us here today. Um, and it's about Jesus' heart for revival. Now revival sounds great, doesn't it? We probably hear it a lot. Uh, revival, hands up if you've heard a lot of people talking about revival. Yeah, a few, then you're probably in the right place. Uh, um, the problem with revival is that it's a bit of a hijacked term. We don't really know what we mean by that now, do we? It's like, is that just having a kind of um, warm, fuzzy experience in a suburban church on a thick carpet? Yeah. Is it mooing like a cow? Is it seeing your little finger healed of aches and pains? Is it, you know, what, what is revival? And um, what I think is that if our destiny lies in our history, and I do think that, then what has been formed in us and around us needs by God's Spirit to be reformed in order to be transformed. And the transformation of society so that it begins to mirror heaven on earth it would seem to me would be quite a good working definition of revival. Another way of looking at it, and whenever I come to different churches, I'm looking for connection points. And um, it's really interesting to me that you guys are about to start uh, the prayer course uh, through 24-7 prayer. Um, the church that my wife Sarah and I are part of leading in Marenburg is called Tree of Life. Uh, we have been part of 24-7 prayer for the, for, for the last 10 years. Um, and so we're actually the first 24-7 prayer community in South Africa and Africa. So it's great that you guys are doing the prayer course. It's brilliant. Pete's very eloquent and has got a huge history of uh, seeing God and doing the prayer. Um, but also, um, EMI and Andre. Where's Andre? Andre designed the home in Manenberg that we have just opened for gangsters and addicts to come 
and know Jesus and live and get free. I've even got my EMI open. I'm proud of the So for the last eight years, my wife Sarah and I have been living in our little part of Mallenberg. Um, and Sarah's mother passed away about ten years ago. And she received some money and we felt like the Lord said, move into Mallenberg and give me everything you've got. And I will give you everything I've got to turn your home into a habitation for my Holy Spirit. And over the last eight years, we've lived in Mallenberg and welcomed, I've lost count, but around 50 or 60 young men who've knocked on our door, in tears, some of them, bags packed, saying, I'm in gangs, I'm on drugs, and I've heard I can get free here. Can't I come and live with you? And we say, yeah, sure, come on in, if there's room. But it got to the stage in 2019 where we had to say, I'm so sorry, we're actually full. And we have been for the last 18 months. But there's a block of flats across the road from us that when I moved in back in 2014 to our current house, I remember just thinking, Lord, one day, eh? one day, we bought the flats in 2018 and in 2019 we started a journey with EMI in designing it to, uh, they would be what you'd call a renovator's dream. Uh, they had a lot of work to do, and I think Andre had a lot of headaches uh, designing something fit for purpose. But today I'm happy to say we've relaunched, and we've got a double capacity that we once had, and we're seeing young men um, get free and leave gangs and drugs behind. My friend Adam, who's here, give a little wave, ads. Adam is the living our supervisor and is discipling and being discipled by these young guys in about equal measure. So this is what we do, and uh, just to reiterate what Rog said, for us, church is Monday to Saturday. We do meet on a Sunday, but it's a bit chaotic. Uh, some of us are detoxing, others are still on drugs. A couple have made commitments to follow Jesus. There are a couple of Muslims in there, kids running around, and uh, generally most people know why they're there. And there are a smattering of Christians in there as well. Um, and that's our Sundays. Uh, so much like this, really. Um, <laughs> And, um, <laughs> but yeah, um, that's, that's what we do. And we, we run a home for addicted uh, gangsters who want to come get free and meet Jesus. We say, come and belong in family, believe in Jesus, and then become all he's created you to be. And then we go home for um, at-risk uh, women and their children as well, uh, where really the, the message is the same. Um, our whole thing is, what does it mean to seek the peace of man and earth? as a family of families, not missionaries, nothing like that, but neighbours, um, called to seek the shalom of the city. That was an accident, I wasn't meant to say any of that. Right. So that's what we're trying to do in Manhattan. We're trying to, and the way actually that 24-7 talk about revival is renewing the church, rewiring the culture. So as the church is renewed and as we gather and grasp and are open to and are sponges to and are saturated with the vision of Jesus for his world, we begin to see the part that we can play in rewiring the culture. Renewing the church, rewiring the culture. I really believe that's a pretty good definition of revival. Um, but one of the issues we see today when we talk about matters like this in the kingdom is what we hear about is social justice. Uh, and, and the social media is full of social justice chat. And are you woke, aren't you woke, and what about this, and what about that, and do this, and do that. And the problem is, with call-out culture, is that it's based on shame, 
and expose it. And yet when we think about social justice in the kingdom, the kingdom isn't called out, it's called in. Jesus said to these unschooled ordinary men and women, come and follow me. He said, lose your life to find it. And if you look at Isaiah 58, which is often the clarion call of social justice activists, the whole second half of this prophetic mandate for the church, for true fasting and true worship, is a prescription for human flourishing. You will become, as you orientate your life towards the, not voiceless, because nobody's voiceless, but the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard, as you, as you orientate your life towards such people, you will find yourself. Your healing will quickly appear. You will call and the Lord will say, here I am. So guess what? You'll begin to hear his voice clearer. Your right, his righteousness will go before you. The favour of God will take you. You'll be like a well-watered garden. All of these things are Jesus' prescription for human flourishing. And they come, Isaiah 58 tells us, when we orientate our life towards the deliberate silence and preferably unheard. And that is what I want us to look at this morning. Mark chapter 5 is my favourite chapter, I think, in the Bible at the moment. Um, demons, death, and chronic sickness. There's something for everyone in there. Um, and I just want to read a couple of verses. Mark chapter 5. This is called The Healing of a Demon-Possessed Man. So, nice and light. Anyone got Bible? Remember these? <laughs> Massive aggressive, maybe. Apps are great, apps are great. So, Mark chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore his chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you are fortunate. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion, for we are men. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. We're going to carry on reading in a little bit, but what I want to highlight is three things about Jesus' heart for revival that we learn in this passage. Firstly, Jesus' heart for revival will always lead us out of comfort and, and, and familiarity. Okay? Think about the Gerasenes region. Maybe you don't know much about it, nor did I. I Google it. This is a different ethnicity to these Jewish followers of Jesus. Okay? You're talking about different accents, different customs, different culture, different root structures of their outlook. This region was unclean to Jews. And they just got through a storm as well. So they're popping the anti-nausea tablets. They're thinking, what on earth will be worth that trip. And they get to this region, they go, flipping heck, people don't look like us, they don't speak like us, they eat different stuff, I feel very nervous, this is ceremonially unclean, Jesus, are we fine here? 
Unfamiliarity is a gift because it keeps you dependent on the voice of God, not what you knew or what you know. I once heard somebody define religion as saying, religion is doing twice what the Holy Spirit did once. And when you're in unfamiliar circumstances, you cannot rely on doing twice what you know worked last time. For me, moving into Mannenberg, age 23, with a heroin addict who assured me he was clean from heroin, was a steep learning curve, as over six months, everything went missing. That young man is now 10 years clean, married with two children, and training to be a father. It was the unfamiliarity that was God's gift to me, because it kept me spiritually sharp. And it continues to be today, even 14 years into living in a community that I didn't grow up in. Jesus' heart for revival will necessarily lead us out of comfort and familiarity. Looking for who's manifesting a lot. <laughs> Two, Jesus' heart for revival seeks out those the world rejects. God has a prefer preferential option for the poor. Did you know that? That is not just social Marxism. That is not even social Marxism, whatever anyone means by that. God's preferential option for the poor is not because the poor are somehow better than anybody else, but because the world puts them last, and the last will be first. God loves to manifest in the opposite spirit to the prevailing powers of our culture. Amen? And so the first person they encounter. A demonized man, living in tombs, cutting himself with stones, out of control, mentally unstable, a danger to himself and to the society. How do we know? Because they had chained him up, and they had plumped him in the graves. And the disciples are like, are you joking? This is the guy we did that to come and find. And Jesus is like, yep, welcome to ministry. Welcome to the abundant life. Your best life, right here and now. <laughs> And there's layers and layers of uncleanness here, right? Tombs and death, ceremonially unclean. Cutting himself, blood, unclean. Demons or unclean spirits. Herds of pigs, everyone. We're going to get to the pigs. Remember the pigs. Put Mark in your head. It's all about the pigs, people. Okay? But Mark is hamming it up, isn't he? Forgive me. But he's saying, this isn't a place you want to go. This is a place where you would feel completely out of place. You would feel this is inappropriate, this is unsafe. There cannot be possibly anything that Jesus has got for us here or that we've got to offer these people in this place. And yet, this is exactly the place that Jesus chose to go. So ask yourself, where has Jesus asked you to go? Who do you spend most of your time with? Something I wrote in No Neutral Ground, which I, I don't agree with everything I wrote in No Neutral Ground. It was a couple of years ago, and I think we're all changing our theology as we go. But I wrote this, I said, God's way of saving humanity was to move towards danger, towards violence, injustice, and poverty. And so if we spend our lives moving in the opposite direction of Jesus, towards ease and comfort. Can we really say we're following I also heard someone once say, so I like this as well, I said, the church is a bit like a swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shower. Let that sink in. And before you say, oh, Pete's bashing the church, I spent the last 14 years trying to like grow Jesus' church, so I love the church. 
I think the point remains, though, that when you consider we live in the most, one of the most racially segregated cities in the most economically unequal country on earth, we have to believe that we are pretty much in the deep end. And if we're in the deep end, then we need to probably make less noise and learn how to swim harder. Someone else once said the church is a little bit like a badly taken photo. Overexposed, underdeveloped, and a bit blurry around the edges. <laughs> it doesn't take much reading of headlines to see the overexposure of leaders who have fallen, or the conversations in different churches around the underdevelopment of theology, and then the edges. Who are we allowing in? How exclusive? Do we tolerate or do we welcome? One of the absolute, I was actually chatting um, about 10, 12 years ago to this guy, Pete Gregg, who runs the 24-7 prayer, and he was helping us work out what an ecclesiology, what a church in Manenberg could look like when you consider that you have 300 churches in Manenberg, and pretty much everyone's a pastor. And I said to him, it seems to me, Pete, that the last thing Manenberg needs is another church, right? Where it's this sort of, um, often it's a bit of a sort of... Um, but a sort of a varnish, a sort of exterior varnish, a gloss of Pentecostalism, which is jump up and down, hallelujah, God's on the throne. And yet people are dealing with present day and historic oppression and agony. But God's on the throne, hallelujah, tired, I'm blessed, brother, how are you? And, and so Pete, he said to me, well, hang about, if you can make sure you don't steal anyone else's Christians, firstly, <laughs> let's just say it. Nervous laughs. <laughs> if you can make sure you're not seeing anyone else's Christians and that you are ministering to those that the church won't, so gangsters, addicts, and Muslims, for us, and he said, if you're making a measurable difference in the lives of the poor and the oppressed, what community doesn't need more of them? And when you frame it like that, I'm like, cool, sign us up, we're a church. We didn't like using the C word before, but we're happy to now. Okay. So thirdly, Jesus' heart for revival carries power. It carries power. Dunamis power, where we get our word dynamite from. What was the villagers' response to this man, this demoniac? Demoniac. Just say demoniac. We should say that word more, shouldn't we? Translate that into a um, conversation today. <laughs> Not if you're a married couple. <laughs> what was society's response to this demonized man? It was marginalizing to the edge of society. It was incarcerate him. It was get on with our lives as if he didn't exist. And if he makes too much noise to go and chain him up again. Does that ring a bell, anyone? Yeah. What do we do today with those causing trouble? Those who were intimidated by, those who are maybe mentally unstable, or those who are living lives of crime. We do exactly the same thing. And yet, here's the thing, we can judge the villages there, but we've got to have a look at ourselves and our own society. The thing is, that was the best the world had to offer that man. As hard as that sounds, that's the best the world had to offer. They had no ideas. It was a resigned 
situation of containment, really. And if I think about Manenberg, you know, we have lots of people saying to us, well, you know, the people you live with belong in jail. And we say, I don't think anyone belongs in jail, but everybody believes in family. Have you got a spare room? Consider it. So don't lock them all up so they can join prison gangs and get further traumatised. Okay, what about beat up the drug merchants with clubs? Great. The myth of redemptive violence never worked once. What about sending the army? So sending the army or or PAGA. Um, everything is us and them. Yeah. We had some politicians come to tea a couple of years ago, and they were asking, so you know, what's the answer? Essentially, how many addicts can we get for how much money? How quickly can we roll out your uh, uh, approach? How high a profile can we do it? And how well timed can we do it before the next election? And I thought, golly. We're speaking different languages here, aren't we? We're not looking to offer anyone a solution. I don't believe the church is really here to offer solutions. But I do believe that we're to be a prophetic sign. A prophetic sign that another world is possible. And if you listen and look carefully enough, you can hear it breaking through. Like if you've been in a dark aeroplane uh, at night, you know, and they, you put all the windows down, it's pitch black. And then one person just opens the shutter on the window a tiny bit, and light streams in. That's a picture, isn't it, of the kingdom. It lights up the entire cabin. But then, or I think about, I was chatting to a friend in Switzerland working with drug addicts, and she said it's really hard to see anyone delivered of their heroin addiction, not because addiction's hard for Jesus to deal with, but because in Switzerland, the government are giving you free heroin with a cup of tea on some nice warm couches in a little, you know, so it's just this medicating people, more and more addicted, as long as they don't rock the boat and, and, and mess up with mainstream society. And that's basically what these villagers were trying to do to this man, and it wasn't working. But we cannot judge, because it's the best the world has to offer. God is saying to us today, do the thing the world cannot do. We sang it this morning, come and do what only you can do, God. And then some of us who go back to our lives where 99% of it, we can do perfectly well if we've got um, our ducks in a row and we're kind of budgeting all right. <laughs> we serve the world by living lives infused by supernatural power. But here's the thing, Jesus' ministry was always one thing and another. It was always personal, the person right in front of him in that moment. He was always fully present. Jesus would never have been checking or scrolling his phone when you were chatting to him. You know those conversations are irritating, aren't they? He's fully, he's fully there. But at the same time, his ministry was both prophetic and systemic. Yeah. It echoed into the systems and the power structures of society. And I want to explain what I mean by that. If you carry on in that Mark chapter 5 uh, passage, after the demoniac story, you get to a story of Jairus and... Uh, uh, well, she's not given a name, she's just called the bleeding woman, right? Which tells you a little bit about the power dynamics, doesn't it, at that time. So Jairus is the mover and shaker, and this bleeding woman is the move and shaker. And Jesus has a heart for both. Do we know that? Yeah. This is not like God hates rich people or God hates influence. That's not it. He loves the movers and shakers, he loves the moving and shaker. He puts the poor first because the world puts them last. And he calls us to follow him. But Jesus goes to Jairus, and Jairus comes up to him. He says, can't you come and help me? My daughter's sick. She's dying. And Jesus is like, sure, sure. He's not in any hurry, right? And then he's going through the crowd, and then a woman who has had 12 years of chronic bleeding, ceremonially unclean, hopeless, desperate, but full of faith. If only I touch the hem of his garment, maybe then I'll be clean. Maybe then I'll be healed. 
And she does, and she reaches out, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples laugh. And he says, no, no, really, who touched me? And it said, the woman said, I did. And I'm making this bit up. <laughs> but I believe Jesus immediately sat at this woman's feet. Because it said, and then she got to tell her whole truth. Twelve years of chronic illness, broken the back, getting worse year on year, isolated, alienated, marginalized, alone, depressed, and here Jesus sits at her feet and she got to tell her whole truth. That is a whole lot of truth, people. So Jesus is not in a hurry, firstly, because Jairus is pacing up and down, being like, Are you joking? I'm the guy with power here. Sure, this is great, but like I, I got you first. And Jesus knew somehow that the best thing he could do for the woman was not only heal her, but listen to her. Remember, she isn't voiceless. She was deliberately silenced and preferably unheard. He prefers to hear her and deliberately unsilences her, restores her back into society so that when he leaves, she's not still marginalised, and in the middle of that, you have the mover and the shaker, the influential synagogue ruler pacing up and down. Everybody will see that, by the way. And Jesus is the man who makes powerful men wait. So Jesus, in this moment, is actually critiquing the patriarchy and the power structures of the world just by sitting at the feet of this woman and hearing her whole truth. It is personal to her. It is personal to Jairus, although he doesn't know that yet. And it's systemic in its scope, because he is redeeming the structures of the world in order for heaven to look more like earth. Did Jesus care more about the woman? No. Was he unaware of Jairus' need? No. But he knows our needs better than we do. Jesus knew that the crowd needed to see a powerful man wait. Why? Because he knew that Jairus would be transformed by witnessing this woman's liberation. And then, but then he said, well, but then the girl died. So, well, that didn't work, did it? Well, no, because raising the dead is no more supernatural than healing the sick anyway. You need the Holy Spirit, and Jesus can do either. Jairus would have been so confused. Can you imagine that? Jairus is pacing up and down, and the woman's banging on about her story as far as he's concerned. And everyone's trapped, you know, and Jesus is sitting there, eye on Jairus, but listening to the woman. And then the, the, the servant of Jairus comes up and says, don't bother anymore, your, your daughter's dead. And meanwhile, Jairus is crumpled on the ground, just like so bitter, so overlooked. Jesus, don't you see me in my need? And yet Jesus is like, okay, hold it, hold it, hold it. He's going to learn this at some point. Because here's the thing, every delay that God allows in your life is for the sake of relationship. Did you know that? God is never late. But this is wrong for God to be early as it is for him to be late. And we all want him to be early. In the delay, God is making more things right. Okay? That is a faith statement. You need faith to believe that. That is not manifesting my truth or power, to, you know, whatever. That is biblical truth. So Jesus rewrote the woman's story through physical and emotional healing. He rewrote Jairus' story 
through teaching him to trust mid-stat and fit, and by the way, raising the dead. But funnily enough, raising the dead isn't actually the topic, really. It's like, oh, and he raised the girl, I was like, cool, go for it. And then thirdly, he wrote, rewrote local society's story by subverting the patriarchy's judgment of the sick and of the marginalised. Jesus' ministry is personal and it's systemic. Okay? Back to the pigs. Remember the pigs? We haven't actually got there yet. Let me read about the pigs. You're like, he's obsessed with the pigs. You haven't read it yet. <laughs> Verse 11 of chapter 5. A herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. Now this is where the, de- the demoniac has begged Jesus. Send us out of them. Uh, uh, out of them. We, we, the, the demons are, are, are saying to Jesus, send us into the pigs. They begged Jesus, send us amongst the pigs, allow us to go into them. Jesus gave them permission. So evil spirits can only do what they have permission to do. The evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Okay, I never used to get this. I think I'm beginning to get it now. What is the deal with the pigs? Well, here's the thing. The pigs are the key to understanding the story. The herd of pigs. The locals were pig farmers, okay? This is a non-Jewish region where the locals were pig farmers. So their pigs were their livelihood. Their livelihood was what enabled them to live. Comfort, security, things as it's always been. Local economy. And Jesus sends the demons into the pigs. The pigs then run off a cliff and are drowned. So the local people are like... You'd think, right, if we didn't know what the pigs represented, they'd be like, oh my goodness, have you seen, the, have you seen that guy sitting there, fully clothed and in his right mind? Who here's fully clothed? Brilliant. That's a sign of the kingdom right there, guys. Tomorrow, put some clothes on and you are walking in obedience. Okay, fully clothed and in his right mind. And you'd think that the, 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 the villagers would be like, that, that, that would make a great testimony at church. We could put him on the alpha here. That's gold. But they begged Jesus to leave. They begged Jesus to leave. Why? Because here's the thing. What Jesus is saying is that it's a choice between losing their pigs, their material assets, the lifestyle they were used to, and seeing the demonized man free. They had a choice. Do you want to see this guy free? and reintegrated into society? Do you want to see the marginalized listened to? Do you want to see the demonic deliverance of those the world has no answers to being part of your community and your community transformed as a result? Or do you want material wealth, comfort, things that they always have been, don't rock the boat, status quo? Jesus is saying, you have a choice. And he's saying to each one of us, we have a choice. And more than in any other city, I would say, around the world, that choice is a very stark choice in Cape Town. Jesus arrived, healed the sick man, delivered him of demons, but the villagers were unwilling to be inconvenienced. They were unwilling to sacrifice their entitlements to a certain standard of living. They were unwilling to embrace the supernatural power of God in the pursuit of transformation of society. What if the reason we don't see revival is that we're willing to live without it? 
Jesus offered freedom to the demonized man and he took it. And by the way, he was then the first apostle sent out. Jesus offered freedom to the villagers and they refused it and begged him to leave. So it's a fairly easy takeaway, isn't it? Who are we? The reason we don't see revival is because we're willing to live without it. What will revival cost you? And so to end, there's one verse in the chapter beforehand that sets this entire story up. That's Mark 4, 36. And it's just this one comment. It just said, So when they were going in the boat across the lake to this other region, just before the storm, and it said there were also other boats with him. So they were on the lake when the storm comes. Jesus wakes up, silences the storm. But there were other boats on the lake. Meaning what? The other boats would have gone through the storm as well. And Jesus' authority over the wind and the waves would have positively affected every other boat on that lake as well. Do you see? What God is doing in signal, he wants to pass on to other places. There's an Aborigine, um, Aborigine uh, activist called Lila Watson who said, if you come here to help, don't bother. But if somehow your freedom is wrapped up in mine, then let's walk together. And so your freedom, our freedom is interrelated. What God is doing here in the boat of those who are close to Jesus will necessarily affect others. And I've got here, bended knee is the hinge of history. That is prayer. And you're about to embark on a prayer course. Prayer journey. And so, as this family grows, and you are growing, by the way, you might need to look at a new building just saying. Expect the Holy Spirit to initiate collaboration with those in other boats on the same lake. Because that's the nature renewing the church in order to rewire culture.